Welcome to another edition of the Tom Green Podcast. As each football podcast has been this year as part of Three Point Stance Magazine, this podcast is presented to you by Monkey Knife Fight, and we're at Super Bowl Sunday. Believe it or not, we've already hit that time of the year. So if you haven't gotten a prop bet in yet, do so. Put in your deposit with the code 3PSMAG. That's the number 3PSMAG. We'll give you your deposit back. And have some fun playing some prop bets for the Super Bowl. So that's monkeyknifefight.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y-K-N-I-F-E-F-I-G-H-T.com. So, without further ado, we bring in the unexpected Rapid Fire Games champion who had an undefeated record the week of Lions Chiefs for Pickums. He may not have realized it, but yes, that was the truth. He's sitting in an airport right now in the Philly airport trying to give all the Philly Eagles fans hell after two years of having the Super Bowl and Philly special by devouring cheesesteaks. Well, we'll see if he's doing that in between bites when he's on the show. But he is Andy Mitz. He is the Rapid Fire Champion. He is Rocking Chalk on the Rock Chalk Podcast. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Yeah, it's good to be back. I did not realize that I was that uh, champion there. So that's a, a pleasant surprise. And, uh... I will, I will plead the fifth on whether I am devouring a cheesesteak right now, but if, if you catch me a little unprepared, un, uh, I, might, I might be in between by when you try to come back to me for an answer. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I wish I could say I was going down to watch the Super Bowl. Uh, unfortunately, I have business stuff that has to happen on the weekend of the Super Bowl, uh, but I will get to watch the game. I'm looking forward to this game. Uh, you know, it's absolutely fantastic being a Chiefs fan and watching Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs be able to get back to the Super Bowl. Also, my first question will be over under on um, ounces of ketchup that you will consume on Super Bowl Sunday. I'll, I'll put the over under at one sixty four ounce bottle. Oh gosh, way under. I, I'm not a huge ketchup guy. I'll have it a little bit here and there, uh, but the stuff that I'll be snacking on for Super Bowl Sunday probably wouldn't go very good with ketchup. And I am not a ketchup on my steak guy like Patrick Mahomes. Run to death. But that's just one food take that I can't pick up. <laughs> Gotcha. I'm I'm a bit of a ketchup guy, but I'll and I'll be honest. One of my one of my good friends, Nick Pinner, who I've been friends with for darn near 20 years. Unfortunately, not too much of a sports guy, but became a Giants fan after uh, the Eli pass to David Tyree back in 2007. But besides the point, he loves ketchup, and he would probably devour a whole bottle of ketchup just without anything. That's how much he loves ketchup. Me, yeah. You, one of my sons might actually drink a bottle of ketchup if you let him. So. <laughs> Me, at least. I like ketchup on potatoes, ketchup on eggs. Steak, I like a little Worcestershire sauce, but ketchup, that's a Patrick Mahomes thing. So, moving to the Super Bowl preview. Unfortunately, he Andy will not be traveling to the Super Bowl. He wishes he could, like he said. But his Chiefs have made the Super Bowl. So, in, in loose terms, how did the, how did the Chiefs get there? Everyone knows about the, the deep board offside, you know, story there. Um, there's been a huge kind of storyline that's getting revived now that deep board is playing for the 49ers. But what we've seen this year um, is this team has overcome a lot of different, a lot of different types of adversity throughout the year. You know, they dealt with three of their offensive starters on, on the line were out at one point um, for a good two two game stretch. Patrick Mahomes has dealt with an injury and dealt with um, Tyreek Hill having an injury, Jimmy Watkins having a small injury. Like, a lot of their players have had issues health-wise. And if they were able to still overcome that, 
needed a miracle for Miami at the end of the year, um, you know, to help them get that number two seed. But then in the last, like, two to three months, they've been absolutely phenomenal. Haven't really had very many problems. And while they've gotten down early in games, you know, Patrick Mahomes, such a veteran player, you know, shown the ability, no matter how far down this team gets, like, they have absolutely no problem being confident that they're able to come back. And you've seen that confidence come through time after time in the playoffs and allow them to overcome deficits and win in very convincing fashion. Earlier this year, in weeks four through six, it looked like the Chiefs were going to struggle just to get into the playoffs. But Steve Smagnolo's defense, to me, has really been the key to this to these Chiefs making it this far. Because Bob Sutton's defense last year, and I mean Bob Sutton's been a coach in Kansas City since Super Bowl one, but you could just tell that it was time for 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 a changing of the guard on defense. And it was very apparent, even with D Ford's offside in the championship game, that Tom Brady just sawed through that defense when it was third down. It it could have been third down every play in overtime, and Tom Brady would have still found a way to saw through that Chiefs defense like a like a hot knife on butter. That's how bad Kansas City's defense was at one point. But with Steve Spagnuolo in weeks eleven till now, Brandon Davis had a great stat on the show a couple weeks ago for Championship Sunday. The Chiefs were allowing just over 11 points per game in that time, in that stretch. That that just tells you that's how they got there. Yes, Mahomes made, did his magic, but it, w- it was the defense. They say offense wins games, defense wins championships. This defense won them an AFC title. All Patrick Mahomes had to do was just be himself. Yeah, I mean, definitely, especially once you get down, you have to be able to them because even if you can score every possession, if your defense can't stop anyone, you're not going to be coming back. I mean, that's obviously just based in math. But what we saw, and kind of what the problem was last year, is that Bob Sutton, his job was being called for by pretty much anyone who followed the team the year prior to last year. Uh, Andy Reid is a very, very loyal guy. He finds people uh, you know, that he thinks can do the job, he turns it over to them, and then he usually hangs on a little bit too long. Um, in a, in a lot of cases, though, it works out for a guy like Dan Swanson, you know, who is uh, safety on this team, linebacker, depending on, on the actual formation. Um, if he is filled in in a big way after the loss of uh, after the loss of Juan uh, Thornhill, you know, when he went down with an injury, and, and if, if he didn't have a guy like Andy Green, who was willing to stick with a guy like Dan Swanson for that loss, I don't know if he would have been on the team to be able to step up. And I don't know that that, that, that replacement would have been a guy that would have been able to fill in as well as he, as well as he has. But, you know, it, it's one of those things that drives a lot of Chiefs fans crazy because Andy Reid will stick with guys way too long. But in a lot of cases, he will stick with guys long enough and help develop them enough that they can then make an impact if you get through the struggle. Uh, and, and so, yes, I, like everybody could tell that Bob Sutton needed to go. Um, but what Andy Reid likes to do is, again, he likes to find jobs for people, or people that he thinks will do their job well and then turn it over to them and let them do their thing. Uh, and it takes them a little bit longer to move on than he should. That's what we saw. That's what kept the Chiefs from being in fact that Super Bowl instead of, uh, you know, instead of this being their, their, their first opportunity to go win that ring for free. So, you know, it, it's, it's definitely something to look forward to. Bags has done a whole lot more with this team and has changed things a lot more than we would have seen from Mike Bob Sutton. Um, and for that, I will be super grateful because, yeah, without Spagnola, we do not see the Chiefs in the, in the Super Bowl because I don't know if the defense would have improved the way that it did, especially after injury, especially after all of the 
And of course, the meme going around on Twitter was that after the Texans game, yeah, Patrick, let's spot them 24 points and then come back and it'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, yeah, if you're... I thought, that, yeah. I, was saying, I thought that was my favorite meme, honestly, out of the entire playoff so far. Um, because I could totally imagine Travis Kelsey actually going over to, to Mahomes and saying that. Um, kind of in a joking manner, obviously not, you know... Like, I honestly think that could have been more of a not saying beforehand that they would do it, but now that they've gone over, it's like, well, we, we had to let them think they had a chance, right? You know, like, we spotted them 24, now let's go ahead and come back and win. This is going to be awesome. Like, I honestly could have could understand. Like, if, if someone told me that they had that conversation after they got down 24 nothing, I would totally believe it. Just knowing Travis Kelsey, the way that he surfs around, kind of the, the air that they have on that sideline, you know, the, the camaraderie that they have and kind of the way that they actually handle the game. You don't really see very often where Patrick Mahomes was anything get to him. And Travis Kelsey just loves to have a lot of fun and do that kind of stuff. So I, I would totally believe it if that's what actually happened. And I'd also say another meme that I totally believe is when Jeter got into the Hall of Fame, I could totally see uh, George the George Costanza meme. Uh, I got into the Hall of Fame. 99.7% of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I, I will say, um, when we're talking about Dan Sorensen, for those who are fans of NYPD Blue, not me, or the, myself included, we're not talking about Ricky Schroeder. We're talking about the Chiefs defensive back, Daniel Sorensen. <laughs> <laughs> you probably never thought it would make that reference, would, didn't you? <laughs> I, I was saying, it never ceases to amaze me, the random references you pull out when, when I come on your podcast. <laughs> that that makes the show that much more fun. So, oh, yeah. for, for any rock shockers listening, you never know what rabbit I'll throw. I'll pull out of my hat. So we talked about how the Chiefs got to the Super Bowl. How did the Niners, in perspective, get to the Super Bowl? So I, I don't follow the Niners quite as much, but from what I've gathered, you know, I've been you know devouring all the coverage that I could possibly get. Um, and from what I've gathered, and from the little bit that I actually had seen of the Niners this year, like, everyone's talking about their running game as if that's, like, the main thing and the only thing that they have. They do have some speakers at the wide receivers, and, and Garoppolo can throw. He just doesn't usually have to. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's anywhere near the level of talent that a guy like Patrick Mahomes has, but for this offense to be successful, you know, it's not actually required for him to be that good. Um, and so... They have a very successful offense. Like the, the big storyline is obviously their defense because their defense is absolutely phenomenal. I I would be hard pressed to give any other unit you know, that would be the best defense in the in, in the NFL. Like I think that they're that good. The issue has been that you know playing in the NFC. I don't think that the top teams in the NFC are as good as the top two teams were in the AFC. Um, in, in terms of opponent, you know, not including San Francisco because they obviously can't play themselves. Uh, so like it's very very possible that the San Francisco team could be a better team than the Chiefs. Um, but in terms of evaluating them against the other teams in the NFC, there's not that level of talent or that level of, of you know, I guess, uh, you know, overall quality of team in the NFC when you compare them to teams like the Ravens and, and, the, and the Chiefs over in the AFC. And so I don't know that they've, they've really seen much um, that will lead me to think, you know, that they should have any kind of significant advantage in the game. I do think it's, it's going to be a close game, um, and I do think that the, the 49ers are very, very talented. I am worried about that defensive line. The, the defensive pressure that they get from that line 
is really what is kind of going to, or it, it's, it's what carries them to the Super Bowl, and if they win the Super Bowl, it's going to be because of that defensive pressure that they're able to get. And how do you feel how the Niners got to the Super Bowl was, it was John Lynch and Jimmy Garoppolo. And, of course, Kyle Shanahan as well. But three years ago, this team had Chip Kelly and Blaine Gabbard. And somehow, somehow Chip Kelly teaches Blaine Gabbard how to win a game in the NFL. So that was the accomplishment before John Lynch. But John Lynch comes over, takes over, uh, takes over everything pretty much, changes the culture, brings in Kyle Shanahan, who was a coach that very well should have won Super Bowl 51. But John Lynch gives him a chance. Gets Jimmy Garoppolo. Garoppolo gets hurt a couple of times, but comes back and just believed in his system. And the defense and every everybody just had a little more pep in their step this season. And so especially the defense with Robert Saleh. That defense got a lot of sacks, got to pressure the quarterback a lot, got turnovers, and especially Richard Sherman. <laughs> the addition of him just made that defense so much better. And like you had said, they're probably one of the best units in the in the NFL. And and let's not forget that the Niners played the Ravens this season and lost. So the Niners have that experience under their belt playing a top-tier AFC team. So this game this game is going to be something else. Let's, let's dive into it. How do, how do your Chiefs uh, beat San Francisco? And it's more than just show up, of course. Oh, of course, of course. No, <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a very good game, you know, throughout the entire game. I think it's really going to come down to a couple different things. Um, it's going to require the speed of these uh, wide receivers to really open things up, especially underneath, uh, to allow Travis Kelsey to have the kind of impact on the game that we can see. You know, if, if they're not able to take the top off, and, and the easiest way to do that is to attack the safeties in the middle, you know, that's the one weakness of this 49ers defense is the safety players they do have. Um, while, while they have serviceable guys, they do not have the kind of top-tier safeties you need to be able to handle the blazing speed of both Tyreek Hill and McCole Hardman, you know, and then also going to deal with the intermediate route that Watkins can bring, and then also the down-low route, you know, that you'll get from, from Travis Kelsey. And so the fact that the Chiefs have dangerous weapons at all levels of the defense there is going to make it difficult for them. And if they can if they can attack one area and, and require the 49ers to shift the way that they're trying to defend it, and then find the next area. The only way really to kind of shortcut that entire or, or short-circuit that entire process is to get consistent defensive pressure on Patrick Mahomes, not allowing him time to scan the field, not allowing him the time to find people. Um, the issue with that, though, is I don't think that the 49ers, like, while they're very successful doing that on, on a normal quarterback, including guys like Lamar Jackson, they were very successful on that for the vast majority of that game against Ravens. Patrick Mahomes is a completely different animal. Uh, he is the only quarterback in the NFL right now that has shown the ability consistently to scramble while keeping the guys downfield to look for, you know, guys, uh, to look for open targets. He has a fantastic chemistry with Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, and he's building that with Sammy Watkins and Nicole Hardman already at this point, where he can anticipate what they're doing, they can anticipate what he needs them to do, and so they've been able to connect on just completely ridiculous plays. There was one in, in, in the game against Houston where you know, Kelsey is running around to the sideline, and that kind of loops around the defender to cut it back inside in a way that you would never really expect. And yet, Patrick Mahomes had already started his throw back inside where only Travis Kelsey would be able to get it before Kelsey even started the loop around. So the fact that they were both able to improvise on that play 
the exact same way and make that connection is absolutely phenomenal. And they do that a lot. They've been done doing it like all year long for the most part. And so I just I, I I do think that the 49ers are going to be able to make some changes and they are going to be able to, to get the passing homes a few times. The question is, are they going to be able to do it often enough to keep the Chiefs from scoring? Because I do think that the Chiefs defense is a little bit better than people are giving them credit for. And I don't know that the that the San Francisco offense can rely on the running game to open things up in the passing game as much as they're hoping it will. Gotcha. So my three keys to this game are, one, score first. For the love of God, Kansas City, score first. You beat Houston after spotting them 24. You beat Tennessee after spotting them 17. You're not going to beat San Francisco spotting them anything. So score first, one. Two, yes, Patrick Mahomes. Heck, the San Francisco 49ers could put a blindfold on Patrick Mahomes, and he could probably still find Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, and Nicole Hardman for maybe not the deep plays, but at least short plays. So we know that Mahomes is amazing. In fact, and you'd said he, he could look downfield. He doesn't have to look downfield. He tried that against Jacksonville. It didn't work, but he tried it. To even have the audacity to try it, it tells you that he has that much confidence in his game. So... Uh, score first, Mahomes, do your thing, and defense, the defense has a, a whole different animal to face with Jimmy Garoppolo and that speed of the Niners' offense. They say that, they say that speed kills. Then that's how, that's how the Chiefs are going to have to attack this game is that force the Niners' speed to kill themselves on routes rather than – and I'm not saying the Chiefs don't stop anything, of course. I'm saying – Speed kills. That may you may have to do it by the, by that way. It sounds like his airport terminal is trying to tell him to go to his flight, but that's but he's got a longer layover with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sorry. That's all right. That are hearing all of the airport announcements, but um, to, to kind of talk about your point though, like I think the fact that that losing Juan Bornner, while you never want to lose a guy like that, it has required Spagnola to shift guys to I think positions that fit their own individual skill sets a little bit better. Dan Sorensen, I would never have thought would have been, you know, a deep safety. Um, he's played it a little bit here and there. Um, but, but for the most part, taking over for Wampo and Hill has been Kendall Fuller, who, you know, came into Kansas City as a slot corner, but tried to play him outside last year on the Bob and It didn't necessarily work out so well. They brought him back inside to let him be utilized kind of those slot corner skills that he has that are absolutely phenomenal. Um, but now they've actually started playing him a whole lot more as a safety really kind of seems to fit into the way that he plays a little bit better. Um, and they've really been able to kind of take advantage of that to allow Tyron Matthew to roam wherever he needs to in the backfield and do pretty much anything that the team needs, you know, ask, ask them to do. Um, they, they have a couple guys, like cornerbacks are where I think the Kansas City defense is the weakest, um, but they have Traveris Ward, Rashad Greeland. You know, they have a few guys that have played very well at, at, at times. The question is going to be, you know, are they going to have issues? And can they bring enough help over the top uh, to keep some of these San Francisco speed receivers? Um, the one thing that gives me confidence here, though, is, you know, yes, San Francisco theoretically has the ability to beat you over the top. They have that ability with the speed, but they have not really used that very often throughout the year. Like they've used it in, in certain spots, but it hasn't been nearly as consistent as it has for the Chiefs. And so while, you know, I, I don't know it's necessarily super important to the Chiefs to score first because, the Chiefs have shown that they can pile on, you know, 24, 28 points in a, in a seven-minute stretch of game time. 
I don't know if this was really shown that, uh, other than the fact when they're just completely overmastered. Like, we're not going to see that sort of situation where San Francisco is, you know, demonstrably more talented than the team that they're playing against Chiefs. And so I don't think they're going to be able to do the same sort of thing where they're just going to overwhelm the Chiefs. Yeah, they might, they might get the better of them. They might score first. It might take Kansas City a little time to get everything going. But once that offense gets humming, you know, it's really going to be really easy for them to potentially score in bunches. And then the defense just needs to get a stop or two to help shrink the lead there and allow them to get back into it. And we've seen this in the Kansas City team. When they start to build some momentum, like I know, I'm normally not a big fan of talking about momentum in a game, uh, but there's just something different about this team where if they start to build on some momentum, it hypes the entire team up more. It, it actually, you know, it kind of changes the entire air of the stadium. Um, and so I, I, I think that there is actually something to it for this team. Um, and once they get going, it's going to be hard to stop them. Right, and of course. Uh, I got to throw in the little Lions nugget here because we hadn't really done a show since the Chiefs-Lions preview, but back in week three, Bashad Breland's fumble was a score. Kenny Galladay's non-catch should have been a catch. Agree or disagree? You know, it's been a long time since I even thought about those. I would say the catch was questionable enough. Like, I, I, if I when I was seeing that live, I, I probably would have said that it could have been a catch. Um, but if, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was something that they ruled not a catch on the field and there was not enough evidence to overturn it. Um, and if that's the case, like, I think it was borderline enough that they had to stick with the call that was on the field. Um, as, 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 you know, the other one, when you're talking about Rashad Freeland's fumble, are you talking about his recovery that he ran all the way back and they pulled it back? Or am I thinking of something else? Uh, when I believe it was Carrion fumbled the ball and Bashad Breland recovered it for a touchdown. <laughs> And ran it all the okay, way. That's right. But they actually let that stand. Yes. Um, and yes, that was one. I think that was a similar sort of thing. I probably would have called it a fumble and a score live. Um, it was definitely questionable, but I, I don't think there was enough evidence there to overturn it the way that it So there you have it for the Lions crowd that has that somehow is still listening to the Tom Green podcast post Lions season. <laughs> we we have our final answer as far as the. <laughs> Week three debauchery. But back to the Super Bowl preview. Um, how do the Niners defeat the Chiefs, as scary as that sounds to you? So it's going to take a couple things. They have to get pressure up the middle. Um, while, while the Chiefs offensive line has been phenomenal and done a really good job of giving Patrick Mahomes at least three seconds to kind of read the field, which is you know, plenty for him, um, I, they have not faced a defensive front that is quite as talented, especially at the middle. Uh, so I would be a little bit worried about that. The one thing that kind of helps me here uh, in feeling a little bit better about that is the ability of, of Patrick Mahomes to kind of escape and, and still keep his eyes downfield. Uh, but it's going to take them collapsing him in the pocket, like containing him into the pocket and then bringing that pressure up the middle. Uh, that's, that's kind of the first thing that they have to do. The second thing they have to do is they have to find a way to be super physical with these speedy receivers and keep them from just running away from them. Uh, so there's going to have to be a lot of chips on the line. And they're going to have to find, like, you, you can't give him a cushion to try to beat him over the top. You have to slow them down at the point of attack there. Um, because if you give them the cushions, then Patrick Mahomes will take that every single day. You know, every single play, he'll throw a four or five yards, and then they can make them a miss and, and, and run to the house. Um, so you, you can't, you know, try to give huge cushions to, to beat that speed. You have to find ways to slow them down so that they cannot get back there. And then even then, you still have to bring help over the top. Um, the, real, the real big thing, I think, is that they, they cannot allow Kansas City to get their running game going consistently. And 
Kansas City does not typically try to do that, but if they can get the running game going at all, then they will turn it into RPO, where you know they will they will kind of force San Francisco to come up and guard against the run and turn that into a deep pass play where they can burn you really really fast. So I think I think honestly those are the kind of the, the two main keys. I think the, the third one, I am not a big fan of people that say you know pound the ball to try to control the clock and, and all of that. I really think that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to have to have a very good game. He's going to have to probably throw for at least three scores, probably somewhere close to 400 yards. If Garoppolo can get going and can hit his receivers consistently, he's going to put a lot of pressure on the team. And even if Mahomes does then start to get everything going at that point, uh, by that, you know, Garoppolo should be playing well enough that, that they can weather the storm of Mahomes coming back on them. Gotcha. My keys to San Francisco winning are... One, make, make me quote movies on Twitter, meaning the Born Identity, the Born Supremacy, the Born Ultimatum. <laughs> if you somehow see me tweeting that over the course of the Super Bowl, things are not looking good for your team because they finally found, they will find the speedster Kendrick Bourne and put him in the end zone. Attack with Colonel Mostert? Um, I, know, I know I had just contradicted your point, but if they can attack the ground, then they can attack the air. Of course, you had said that Garoppolo needs to attack the air for them to have a chance, which this this game could very well end up a shootout, and it, it most likely will. Like, I think okay. a lot of people are saying that the Chiefs are not going to be able to handle the running game of San Francisco, but Mustard, I don't know that he's even going to be, like, like Kevin Coleman, I think, is going to have a big say in what happens in this game. Like, I don't think he's, we're going to see Raheem Mustard have the same sort of game this time that he did against the Packers. Just because I don't think there's going to be as many opportunities. And also, I think that the Chiefs are a little bit better against the run than a lot of people give them credit for. The other thing, too, is to really consistently be able to attack the Chiefs defense, you cannot get super focused on one side of the ball. Like, they're going to have to have a heavy, a, a heavy dose of running. But they also need to get the passing game going, and they need to get it going early so that the Chiefs cannot get in on the run to shut that down completely. Because if they can, if they can make one you know, portion of the game ineffective offensively for the 49ers allows them to really key in on the rack. And and then that causes all kinds of problems. There we go. And of course my third key would be win the turnover game. Whoever's going to win the turnover game is going to win this Super Bowl. Kansas City's defense is going to have to get a takeaway or two, maybe more. San Francisco's defense will have to get a takeaway or two, maybe more. Whoever wins the turnover game is going to win is going to win Super Bowl 54. So Attack with Bourne, run it, let the running game open up the passing game, and win the turnover game. So, with all that being exclaimed, how does Super Bowl 54 end? Who, who, who gets to hoist the Lombardi Trophy? Is it you or is it Robert Saleh? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing anything other than a Chiefs win here. While I, I, I definitely can understand how San Francisco might get to a Super Bowl victory here, I just, you know, I think that Patrick Mahomes is far and away the best player on the field, and he is going to go ahead and take this game over at some point. I do think that San Francisco will get out to an early lead, probably, you know, 10 points or so in the first quarter. Um, but Kansas City is going to go ahead and get settled down, kind of figure out what it is they're trying to do. Like, all going to dial up some pressures that I don't think that, that San Francisco is quite ready for. Um, and then that, you know, Mahomes is going to find his, kind of find what he needs to get it turned on. I, I just... You know, I think that they're going to have to defend against Hill and, and McCole Hardman early in the game. 
Um, but at some point, they're going to misread something. It's going to, you know, they're going to be a big, gigantic play that's going to go for a touchdown or something to that effect. And, and I just don't think that San Francisco is going to get these super explosive plays that they got in the NFC playoffs. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the Chiefs defense is very, very assignment sound and is going to get, you know, I, I, I would I would not be surprised if there were not any turnovers at all in this game because both of these teams are fairly good at, at, at you know, taking care of the ball. But I would also not be surprised to see multiple sacks for both sides. I think that the Chiefs will probably get, you know, two or three more sacks from San Francisco. It'll come a very key moment. And I think that ultimately Kansas City, you know, is up by 10 or so with about seven minutes left. San Francisco will drive down for a score to make it close, but they're just not going to have enough time to come back at the end. They might. They won't recover the onside kick as that has been only successful. What less than five percent of the time this season, if I'm not mistaken. If that sounds about right, that's a very, very difficult kick to recover. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be that they're going to run out of time. They wouldn't get an onside kick recovery just because I think I've only seen one successful one all year long, um, which kind of led them to not really go for it unless you absolutely have to have it. I mean, I just. I think ultimately San Francisco is going to run run out of time at the end, and the Chiefs will be poised in the Super Bowl, finally getting Andy Reid that Super Bowl that he's been missing for so long. Very well. Uh, not, and my Super Bowl prediction, the Niners, I think the Niners are one year ahead of where they, they're really supposed to be, honestly. What they have done, though, is nothing short of amazing. From 2-14 and 14 in year one to Super Bowl, and it's it 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 very closely mirrors the Tigers from two thousand three to two thousand six. One hundred nineteen losses in two thousand three to in the World Series in two thousand six. I think Kansas City I think Kansas City is a better team. I think San Francisco isn't quite there yet, but made it but made it very well to get this far, but it will be a good game. It will be a shootout. And if you if you're not a football fan and watching this game, this this Super Bowl game will make up from last year. Even though I thought last year's Super Bowl was very good, even though it was only a defense, it was a defensive battle, a, a a game that real football fans would appreciate. I'm not sure how you thought, but I I had felt that last year was a a game that real fans would appreciate. The same with Super Bowl Fifty. This game is going to make up for it, and I'm going to say Chiefs 45, San Francisco 41. Yeah, I mean, I think it will definitely be a high-scoring game. I don't know if it will be that high. I could probably go something like Chiefs 38, um, San Francisco 34. But, um, you know, to, to kind of talk about your point about last year's Super yeah. Bowl, I think I, I could have enjoyed that Super Bowl more if, you know, there wasn't some really, really – big issues that kept probably the two teams that actually deserve to be there out of Super Bowl in Kansas City and, and the Saints. I think that should have been, I think, Chiefs Super Bowl last year, and that kind of ruined it for me watching the Patriots stop their way to another another Super Bowl victory, especially since, you know, the Rams kind of really crapped the bed and not scoring anything at all when that was kind of their calling card all year that they were the high-flying offense. And we remember last year in the Times Picune Super Bowl. What Super Bowl? That was the same in the in the Andy Mitz Chronicle. Super Bowl? What Super Bowl? <laughs> no, I, I recognize that it happened, but I just 
did not enjoy it very much because <laughs> I thought there should have been two different teams in the Super Bowl. So there you go. If you, if ever you make it, if ever you make your own newspaper, you you'd have to you'd have to trademark my name too, the Andy Mitz Chronicle. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> and of course, the final Super Bowl question I have before we get into another part of the show is: Will the nation receive free wings on February seventeenth, courtesy of Buffalo Wild Wings? All those that are hoping for free wings are going to be totally disappointed. I just don't see how the team goes over time. I realize these are two fairly closely matched teams. You know how explosive these offenses are? But the team that's going to have the ball last is probably going to be the one to win it. And I just I just don't actually see it going over time. And if it does, I'll definitely be enjoying the free wings. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, I, I, I won't say no to one if we actually get them. I just don't think it's actually going to happen. Right. So, because he is part of the... Because Andy is part of the Rock Chalk podcast, it's only fitting that we... We have the ending of this show to be talking about some college basketball. It's it's the middle of college basketball season. Michigan is roughly halfway through their college basketball, their Big Ten season, the same with Kansas in the Big 12. Um, what are our thoughts so far? Of course, um, we'll start with just the plain old thoughts over, about the season so far for Kansas. We'll start with them. Sorry, you said thoughts about the, the overall season? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I keep hearing all the talk about how there is no dominant team in, in college basketball this year. Um, and, you know, I actually talked about this with my co-host on the Rockstar podcast just on our, on our episode. It's actually um, will be dropping right after we record this, actually. Um, and, you know, what, when, when I went and looked back at the numbers, you know, the one year, the, or the most recent year that I can remember where everybody agreed that there was a super dominant team um, was back in 2009 with North Carolina, where they just stomped their way to the national title. Everybody said that start to finish, they were the dominant team for the entire year. And looking at this Kansas team, they have a very similar resume at this point in the year. They're actually better in terms of overall adjusted efficiency margin, um, which, you know, to be honest, for me, on, on, on like Ken Palm and Bart Torvik, is kind of the way to truly evaluate how good a team is. By looking at that adjusted efficiency margin, they're actually better than North Carolina team was. They have the same or a larger margin between them and the second place in Duke this year. Um, and so, like for all intents and purposes, if if you know if if Devon Dobson didn't get hurt against Baylor, um, you know if if uh, Marcus Garrett didn't get hurt, I think it was. I'm, there's been so many injuries. I'm I'm having difficulty remembering which one happened when. But the injury against Villanova, where they didn't have him for half the game, pretty much. Uh, I, I believe that that one was there. And then, of course, Duke. You know, we had you had no Isaiah Moss against Duke at the beginning of the year. Like, if those three games had turned out one possession differently, then Kansas, at worst, would be, you know, uh, have only one loss, that loss being two Baylor at home in kind of a forgivable situation with, you know, your star point guard being out for almost half the game. And everybody would be talking about how dominant the Kansas is. It wouldn't, it wouldn't affect their... Yeah, their efficiency margin, their overall advanced, you know, stats profile, anything like that. Um, but they would have more wins, and so everybody would say, "Oh my gosh, this is like clearly the most dominant team." Uh, we are looking for narratives at this point, uh, you know, to kind of tell us how the season's going, and not actually, I think, looking in the actual stats that are predictive that kind of tell us what we actually can reasonably expect. And so, 
I, I don't know that I would go as far as say that, you know, Kansas is far and away the best team, but they have been performing in such a way that any other year we probably would be talking about them as dominant team. So, all that goes to say, like, I think this has been a very, very good season for Kansas. Kansas has finally gotten everybody kind of settled in to where they need to be. Everybody has a very clearly defined role now. Christian Brown has really come on in the last couple of weeks to solidify his, his spot in the starting rotation, uh, which pushes David McCormick out of the starting rotation and moves Kansas back to a four-guard lineup, which is where they perform the best. So we're, we're definitely looking at probably the best basketball yet for this Kansas team, which has gotten really excited, um, especially going into the end of the year. You know, they still control their own destiny in, in, in the big break for a number one seed in the tournament. And I think as long as there are no injuries, you know, I think that this is going to be a very dangerous team come March, and I'm really looking forward to it. The Big 12 this season has been has exposed to the nation what the Big 12 was despite Kansas dominating it. You have a you have a conference that's very good from top to bottom. You have Texas Tech who made the national title game last year. You have Baylor who is an upstarting team. You have Kansas who you just talked about if if it weren't for a loss here and a loss there would be We'd be talking. We'd be talking about them being the dominant team. We have a TCU team that everybody projected to finish last. That, and correct me if I'm wrong, is still projected to make the tournament. And really, the lackluster team, and I could be wrong, is Oklahoma State, and they've been lackluster ever since Travis Ford and Marcus Smart left. <laughs> yeah. So, so to kind of jump on those a little bit, one at a time. Um, sure. You're right in terms of who's up at the top. You know, it's it's, uh, it's Baylor. And Texas Tech are both, or I'm sorry, Baylor and West Virginia are both very, very good teams. That's Texas another Texas one I forgot is West Virginia. Recently. Um, but, you know, overall, I still think that they're very good. They have lots of really great defense. And it's weird because this is not a typical Big 12 conference this year because they have a lot of very, very good defenses, which is not the norm for the Big 12. In fact, it's almost like the Big 12 and the Big 10 has kind of swapped places this year compared to what they normally have. Because normally <laughs> it's the Big 12 is every single team has a shot on any given night to win that game. It's a very tough conference. There's like no guinea game to see in like the ACC all the time. Um, and, and the Big Ten usually has lots of really good defenses with okay offenses that you know have like super low scoring games and everybody kind of makes fun of them for it. This year, the, the script has flipped entirely. The Big 12 has you know, four good teams up at the top, but tons of really good defenses subpar offenses that a lot of really low scoring games. And it's cause a lot of people to kind of wonder, is the Big 12 actually any good this year? And I would say, especially up at the top, they're, they're very good this year up at the top, and they, they're, they're decent in the middle, kind of like what the Big 10 has. The Big 10 is super deep this year with so many teams that can pretty much do you know anything to any other team in the conference. Um, and, and now, of course, everyone's talking about how, well, clearly the Big 10 is the best team and the best conference in the, in the nation this year. I find that to be a little hypocritical, being the Big 12 guy where the Big 12 didn't get that recognition that the Big 10 is now getting for this exact same situation. But I think it's kind of opened a lot of eyes to a lot of people about how good these conferences actually have been um, and, and you know how they will be moving forward. Um, with all that being said, like Oklahoma State you mentioned has been having all kinds of problems. Um, likely, one of their, their star players went down with an injury for a little while took a little bit of time coming back. They have struggled. Um, one of their seniors is Lindy Waters, who normally is a three-point chart shooter for them, has been struggling mildly with a shot this year, and they have completely fallen off a cliff, um, which is kind of 
that in a little bit just because I, I actually work very closely with some Oklahoma State alums uh, on one of the other podcasts that I do that covers the Big 12. Um, you know, he definitely has not enjoyed everything going on there. Um, but, you know, the, the fact is there are a lot of really good teams. Teams that are really bad this year are Oklahoma State, Iowa State because it's essentially Wigington and no one else on that team. And TCU, despite the fact that they are up towards the top of the conference, they just lost at home to Texas. And Texas is not a very good team at all this year. I do think that TCU is going to kind of come back down to earth a little bit. Um, but the fact that they have done what they were able to do already is still an accomplishment considering that nobody expected this team to do anything at all this year. Right. Jamie Dixon's got that team playing very well down in Fort Worth. And, and, and like you had said, the Big Ten and Big 12 have basically flipped scripts where the Big Ten is seemingly unpredictable right now, but deep, and the Big 12 is filled with defense. When I've joked on football podcasts that the Big 12 is the big what is defense? 12. Well, they've certainly become the defensive force this year. And then the, the, the game that sticks out to me so far from the Big 12 was Baylor and Florida. How Baylor just goes in to the basketball version of the Swamp, Exact Tech Arena, and destroy Florida. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a combination of, I mean, Baylor's definitely a very good team. I would put them top three at this point this season. Um, potentially even top two, like behind Kansas. But I think it's, it's kind of up in the air whether Duke or Baylor are the, are the, is the second best team in, in the nation so far this year. And they have a very impressive resume, including that win against Florida. I do think part of that, though, is that Florida is just a little bit overrated this year. Um, you know, they have been trying for years to get people to think the SEC is really good at basketball. Um, and so they, they tend to kind of overinflate what the SEC teams are. Not saying that they don't have some very good teams in that league, uh, but I think Florida was kind of a beneficiary of being inflated a little bit um, in terms of actually how good they are. I was not expecting Florida to really make that a game, and for some reason Florida was favored going into that game by the Vegas line. Uh, so I was not shocked to see Baylor go in and kind of beat the crap out of them. Um, I, I realize that a lot of people were, it's definitely still an impressive win, because I do think that Florida's a solid team, and that was a road game. Um, but I'm, I'm not really that surprised by that particular result. Gotcha. Moving to the Big Ten, like, like we had said, the scripts have flipped as far as defense versus seeming unpredictability. Um, if you like big names, then you will like the Big Ten, because we have um, Bishanishvili, at Illinois and Thor Thorbjarnarsson at at Nebraska. So if you if you like big names, come to the Big Ten. But <laughs> Illinois, of course, has been the surprise so far. They're in first place. Brad Underwood's got them playing great basketball. And Michigan, my Michigan so far, has been a disappointment. Is it a surprise? In a way, yes and no, and yes because of how they started this year with beating Gonzaga, who is the number one team in all of basketball right now, but losing to Illinois twice, who I, I understand is in first place, but at the time it's like, Illinois losing to them? What? And losing to Penn State at home? Losing to Minnesota? This this has been a wild ride so far for Michigan, and of course the suspension of Xavier Simpson and losing Isaiah Livers to injury has not helped. Yeah, I mean, Michigan was ranked high early in the year. You know, they were ranked, I think, all the way up at fifth at one point mm -hmm. um, because they had some very, kind of similar to a team like TCU, they had some very surprising results early in the season 
season. They've got a lot of people feeling really good about them. And then something happened for them, whether it was an injury, you know, or a guy's just all of a sudden falling off a cliff, that really kind of turned their fortunes. And that's what happened with Michigan, uh, kind of like you alluded to. You know, yes, they are a decent team, but I, I do think that they were kind of running a little hotter than they normally would. Uh, they were not quite as good as people, I think, thought they were going to be based off of early results. It's also kind of part of the reason that, one, you know, preseason expectations probably are actually a little bit more accurate than most people want to think. Um, and so early results that kind of go against those preseason expectations cause people to change their opinions a lot more than they probably should. Um, now, that's not to say that I thought Michigan was going to be this bad, but I, I honestly thought that Michigan was going to be in the middle of the pack in the Big Ten this year. And they very well may still get back to it, especially if they can get guys healthy and, you know, kind of coalesce that team. Um, I also think that the Big Ten is just completely wonky this year. Um, you know, stuff is going to kind of solidify. There will be kind of some, some sorting into clearly defined tiers, but as it stands right now, it just hasn't really been set up for that. But the one thing I will mention, Michigan State actually is in the lead right now in the conference. They are 8-2 in conference, whereas Illinois is 7-2. Um, okay, so half a game. Illinois will, will get an opportunity. Um, actually, uh, tonight, while we're recording this, they are um, in the pro- or getting ready to play against Minnesota. I fully expect them to win that one because it is at home. And that seems to kind of be the way that it's going for the Big Ten this year is that, for the most part, the home team is winning, um, even if the road team is heavily favored in that. So, you know, I'm, I'm fully expecting that Illinois, by the end of the night, will be back in first place just because Michigan State doesn't play tonight as well. But, um, so, you know, my, my, my correction may not actually get correction by the time it actually comes out. Yeah, we'll definitely see how Illinois and Minnesota play tonight. But um, the only constant that has been so far in this in this Big Ten season is that Northwestern is the doormat, unfortunately. It used to be Rutgers. Now Rutgers is ranked, and they are going to Madison Square Garden, correct me if I'm wrong, as a favorite against the Michigan Wolverines. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Like, Rutgers, I mean, I knew that they were getting better. But I figured it was going to take a lot longer for them to get all the way there. So um, I, I honestly am probably just as shocked as pretty much anybody who would be listening to this that Rutgers is, you know, just a game back from first place right now to the Ten. Got to give a lot of credit to Steve Pico on how he's turned that he's turned that organization around from Mike Tice, who was beating his players, to Eddie Jordan, who is pretty much saying, "I'm here just to be here." <laughs> I'm here just to calm things down, and then Pikeel takes over, and now Rutgers is back to pretty much where they were, just minus the abuse of players. Which, thank God, that's out of there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, let's also talk about, and we, and this was our, this was actually our sound check question before the before the show, the fight between Kansas and Kansas State. I mean, I thought Dana White. Was 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 managing the UFC? I guess I didn't know he was managing the NCAA as well. I mean, you were right there, front and center. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wasn't actually there, but I was watching the game, and I was actually getting ready to kind of sign off and get my thoughts together for the podcast episode that I was going to be taping. Um, and of course, this fight kind of stressed everything late into the night, which threw off all my my podcast because I didn't actually get to talk about the fight um, until a little bit after that. You know, and uh, I mean, uh, it's one of those situations, this rivalry between Kansas and Kansas State, um, you know, I'm actually willing to call it a rivalry now because there actually is kind of that bad blood that wasn't there for the longest time. Um, 
but it's been slowly building over the last few years. You know, the first big incident was when, when Kansas State upset Kansas over in Manhattan. You know, you had fans that rushed the court um, and were, like, running into the Kansas players, which immediately started some bad blood there. Um, then last year, you know, or, sorry, two years back, um, you know, Kansas was up late in the game. Uh, Brandon Green went in and dumped it at the very end of the game after Kansas was already up by double digits at that point. The clock was getting run out, you know, and so he did the normal kind of look like the dribbling it out, and then when everybody turned to go back to their benches, he drove in and, you know, dunked it for another two points at the end of the game. Kansas State players and fans didn't really like that. Um, in fact, so much that when Kansas lost to Kansas State last year over in Manhattan, you had a Kansas State player who did the exact same thing, went in at the end and dumped it, and, it, and immediately said, you know, shout out to Brandon Green, kind of directly alluding to that. This year, you know, Kansas has already kind of dealt with something similar happening. Uh, earlier in the year uh, against Monmouth, George Pappas, who a lot of people were talking about at the time, pulled the ball from Tristan and Aruna. Um, you know, they were getting blown out by like 50 points, and he goes down and dunks the ball and then gets up in Tristan and Aruna's face and gets a technical call on himself. Um, you know, and, and so they were already kind of on edge for something like that happening because it happened earlier in the year, and they had gotten chewed out for it, for, you know, being positive with the ball. So he was so good, was having none of it, and he drove it up at the end of the game. Um, Dewan Gordon for Kansas State decided that he was going to go ahead and steal the ball and go in for the dunk and go and DeSouza, you know, decided that he wasn't going to let him dunk it. He was just going to go and block him. Um, he made the mistake of going to kind of stand over him, should have gotten a technical, but what really kind of, I think, allowed that fight to get to where it was was the fact that the rest of the step in immediately. They take a very, they seem to take a very big, you know, I want to be done with this. I don't want to talk about this anymore to get me out of here approach to the last you know, minute or so of that game. Not really calling anything, allowing people to get really chippy at the end. And then at that point, you know, everyone thought that the game was over. And so the rest were just kind of like, okay, we're done. You know, I'm going to walk away um, instead of taking control of it. Um, Antonio Gordon from Kansas State comes flying in, pushes to South after he stands over Juan Gordon, uh, which, of course, the entire melee. You have guys coming up against the defense to join it, getting up and serving the space. He reacts very poorly to seeing five in the state players rushing at him, starts throwing punches. David McCormick gets in the mix. You know, there's a bunch of Kansas State players getting in the mix. Um, and then it's just actually good for Obviously, the big picture to come out of this is Sylvia Sosa holding the stool above his head. And while it's a very, very bad image, I can also kind of understand what happened there. You know, when you have five, six guys rushing you, don't know where it's all coming from. You see guys in street clothes coming at you. You know, instincts kind of take over. It's like you don't know who's coming, where they're coming from. You do what you have to do to protect yourself. You know, he you held the stool over his head. You see him looking around. And while the national narrative is that a coach pulled the stool out of his hand, you know, if you go back and look at it, he actually kind of had the stool up there, was looking at it, you know, was looking around and said, oh, wait a minute. I don't actually need to hit anyone with this. I'm going to drop it and then go kind of see where I can help out. But to, to help my teammates out, he dropped it on his own, kind of walked over to another area. But by that point, the damage was done. He was rightly suspended, did not handle that whole situation well. You know, I think everybody that got suspension, I thought deserved suspension. The one thing that I was a little bit surprised by, I thought the Big 12 could have given out more suspension, kind of made a stronger statement. It seemed like they pretty much wanted everybody to just stop talking about this and move on. And, of course, you know that that's not actually going to happen 
in the media world to be today. Exactly. As soon as, as soon as you want somebody to quiet to to be silent about something, they're going to be as loud as possible. And we and that was of course, that, of course very good points there about the fight and De Souza suspended twelve games. You had said it's yeah, it, and like I'd said, I thought I thought Dana White was managing the UFC. I guess he needs to manage uh, Allen Fieldhouse as well. <laughs> Everyone needs to fight out for <laughs> Pretty much. So, um, we, had a, we had a nice Super Bowl preview, a little college basketball conversation, which we still are not sure about what's going on with Xavier Simpson, but I know that I... I know that Jawan is a very reserved guy as a head coach, and so whatever happened to Xavier Simpson must have been very serious. Otherwise, we would have heard about it by now. So we'll see what happens with Xavier Simpson as well as Isaiah Liver. So nice Super Bowl conversation and a good college basketball bit for the end of the show. And so I will ask, anything else you have to add to this wonderful Tom Green podcast? No, I think I'm good. I appreciate you having me on. I, I enjoy coming to talk about some things that I don't normally get to talk about. I normally don't focus so much on the Jayhawks. It's nice to kind of be able to, to get my thoughts out about the Chiefs and the Super Bowl and share that excitement. Um, so, yeah, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Definitely. I I make sure Andy Mitz gets whatever podcast material he can't get on his Rock Chalk podcast out on the Tom Green podcast. And, of course... Hey, got to go somewhere. Exactly. And of course, with this podcast, you never know what references I'm going to make. <laughs> so, he is Andy Mitz, and this has been the Tom Green Podcast.